This is undisciplined. Academic by nature, undisciplined in practice. I am Dr. Karee Banton, Director of African and African American Studies and Professor of History at the University of Arkansas. The podcast here, we will push the confines of your traditional academic disciplines and like the subjects of its concerns, African and African American studies, you know, survive under the most terrible of circumstances, but achieve rigor and become even more robust because of it. And so in this podcast, we will unveil how the objectives of African and African American studies can be found in the everyday, if you'll just look. Now let's get into it. So, Warrington. Yes? I have a question for you. So a homie of mine on Twitter recently asked, what happens to the brains of journalists and editors when they write the word Haiti? Well, just the fact that you called your homie, your, your Twitter person, your homie, we call them followers, but <laughs> are you saying like when you type it in Google and, and their autocomplete fills in Haiti, poorest country in the Western Hemisphere? Why do they do that? <laughs> oh, you know autocomplete be racist as... You know, but isn't it reflecting the thoughts of the writer? Uh, so is it the machine or is it the person who is racist? I, man, 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 I could go on about even writing in Patois and autocomplete be trying to correct me in English. But this is a whole subject for a whole nother day. Yes, autocomplete definitely be trying to be imperialist with my African-American vernacular English ways of speaking, too. Stop trying to conjugate my stuff, man. <laughs> Weren't in focus. We're not here to cuss out autocomplete today. <laughs> I want us to talk about Haiti. Why do you think this whole poorest country in the Western Hemisphere, why do you think that dominates the writing of Western journalists? Any suggestions for them? Yes. Journalists, you know you could write Haiti, the nation that beat three European colonial powers at war, orchestrated the only successful slave rebellion, and became the only nation in history to free themselves and form a nation? From the first day of its existence, Haiti banned slavery. It was the first country to do so. The next year, it published its constitution, and um, its article stated that slavery was forever abolished. Haiti was the first nation in Latin America and the Caribbean to achieve independence. Only nation in the age of revolutions to first abolish slavery. Haiti deserves much more credit if we say we love liberty and democracy than any other uh, former slaveholding and slave trading nation. And I would say too, Warrington, and this is going to get me into trouble, that <laughs> Haiti had a more radical revolution than the United States. <laughs> and did you also know that African Americans running away from America led several immigration movements to Haiti where they attempted to plant a colony and settle? Mm -hmm. Did you know that the triple OG, W.E.B. himself, the boys, father was born in Haiti and he considered himself Haitian. Mm -hmm. I think these people need to put some respect on Haiti's name. Absolutely. We know the story of Haiti. 217 years ago, on January 1st, 1804, Haiti became the first independent black republic in the world following a 12-year revolution. And this changed the trajectory of world history. History blew the whole system up, playboy. Everybody knew it. 
Frederick Douglass in 1893 in a speech that he gave outlining why Haiti's revolution was so important outlined, and I want to tell you this, Warrington, because it's so important. He said, speaking for the Negro, I can say we owe much to Walker's Appeal. You've heard of Walker's Appeal, right? Yes. <laughs> he said, Walker's Appeal to the colored men of the world. I mean, he declared he was calling down brimstone and fire and all them people. Yes. Right? But he said, we owe much to Walker's Appeal to John Brown. You know John Brown, Harper's Ferry. Mm-hmm. That a whole band over there was trying to start a revolution. Right. I- I'm dealt with John Brown. But we owe incomparably more to Haiti than to them all. I regard her as the original pioneer emancipator of the 19th century. It was her one brave example that first of all started the Christian world into a sense of the Negro's manhood. It was she who first awoke the Christian world to a sense of the danger of going too far, the energy that slumbers in a black man's arm. Until Haiti struck for freedom, the conscience of the Christian world slept profoundly over slavery. It was scarcely troubled even by a dream of this crime against justice and liberty. Mm-hmm. The Negro was in its estimation a sheep like a creature having no rights which the white men were bound to respect. The Negro was like a docile animal, a kind of ass, capable of bearing burdens and receiving strips from a white master without resentment and without resistance. The mission of Haiti was to dispel this degradation and dangerous delusion and to give to the world a new and true revelation of the black man's character. This mission she has performed and performed it well. Until she spoke, no Christian nation had abolished Negro slavery. Until she spoke, the slave ship followed by hungry sharks, greedy to devour the dead and dying slaves, flung overboard to feed them, plowed in peace the South Atlantic painting the sea with the Negroes of blood. Until she spoke, the slave trade was sanctioned by all the Christian nations of the world and our land of liberty and light included. Men made fortunes, fortunes by this infernal trade and were esteemed as good Christians and representations of the savior of the world. Until Haiti spoke, the church was silent. The pulpit was dumb. Mm. Slave traders lived and slave traders died. Funeral sermons were preached over them. And of them it was said that they died in the triumphs of the Christian faith and went to heaven among the just. It will ever be a matter of wonder and astonishment to thoughtful men that a people in abject slavery had left in them enough manhood to organize and to select for themselves trusted leaders with loyal hearts to follow them into the jaws of death to obtain liberty. Oh, I got a little hot reading that. Frederick. I mean, my favorite Frederick Douglass piece of writing is What to the Slave is the Fourth of July. Mm -hmm. But I think this piece comes really close. Oh, yeah. He was spitting. Oh, oh, child. (laughs) This was... uh. Today, we are joined by Obed Lammy. 
Obed Lamy is a Fulbright scholar and graduate journalism student at the University of Arkansas. He just received his master's degree in journalism with a number of years of experience in journalism under his belt. He has published in different news outlets in his home country in Haiti, as well in the international media in Canada and the United States. And he co-founded a multimedia platform dedicated to civic education and practical information on the public process. He's a first-time filmmaker. Obed has made a short documentary called A Promising Voice that was selected into three film festivals and was a winner of the Audience Award for Student Film at Filmland in 2020. And... I had the pleasure of recently working on a documentary with Obed that commemorated the lynching of three African Americans here in Washington County. Obed, thank you for pulling up. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Dr. Benton, for the invitation. And thank you to my friend Warrington. And it's a pleasure to be with you today. Uh, thank you. Uh, Obed, every time I, I ask someone if they know you, they know you. Why Everybody are you so knows Obed. Why are you so popular on campus? <laughs> okay, I didn't expect that question. Okay, here's the truth about that. So because I'm a journalist, I get to meet a lot of people for my work, but it also turns out that I am a friendly person. I'm not just interested in your story as a journalist and do, you know, a technical work and forget about you. I keep in touch with people. I love people. I like to be around people. I love to listen to people. So I feel like, yeah, that's the reason, but... <gasps> yeah, people always know. It's like, have you met Obed? They're like, yeah. I'm like, and I'm always shocked, you know? <laughs> like, how do you also know Obed? Okay. But you're from Haiti, right? Yes, I am. Tell us about growing up in Haiti. How was that like? Do you like mangoes? Oh, yeah. I mean, it's been 29 years. I'm 29. So um, <laughs> my whole life is Haiti. So I grew up in a small town called Petit Guave. Whenever I'm introducing myself, I always say where I am from in Haiti because I have so much of this hometown in me and so much of me also is in this hometown. Um, my dad has been working as a public school teacher for more than 30 years now. My mom has been stay-at-home mom. So growing up with my dad being a teacher and my mom taking care of us really taught me uh, a sense of community. For example, my dad, every summer he would do uh, after-class program or summer camp for all the kids in my neighborhood. He would feed them. So that's something that always stay with me. And that's why also I like to be with people. We didn't talk too much about politics, but I can say the best history lessons I've learned uh, about Haiti was from my mom. So because my dad was a teacher, he was working in another town, so he spent the whole week outside. And every night, my mom would tell us the story of her, her childhood, where she grew up, and also she was sharing with us the moments um, she lived when the country was under dictatorship with the Duvalier. So we don't necessarily see or read those stories in book. They don't teach them right now in the country. Maybe, I don't really? know why, why. But my mom would always explain us what it was like, what it looked like to be in Haiti during that time. Describe for us your journey to Arkansas. What brought you here? Journalism. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yes, the story of me being in Arkansas is also the story of me becoming a journalist. Journalism was not in my mind going up. And actually, when I was maybe 12, 
one of the most prominent journalists in the country was also in my hometown. He was killed because being a journalist in my country has always been risky, dangerous. dangerous. So I was young, but I still have in mind the atmosphere, the climate in that hometown, because that was a time when there were a lot of political crises. So you couldn't go to school. You have to hide yourself. You couldn't wear uniform. So why you, why couldn't you go to school? Why did you because there was a lot of violence, gang. Usually, politician leaders in my country they are always associated with gangs to maintain their power and also fear. I mean, fear is the strategy that most of the politicians in my country use to not lead, maybe to run the country because there is a lot of conflicts and it seems like in their mind having all the power and exposing the population into this scary situation helped them maintain their power. So we've ex I've experienced that um, being a young boy in my hometown. So yes, at that time, that young boy, I was had no clue he would become a journalist. But I guess I decided to be a journalist when I went to college, not to study journalism, social communication and business management. But I don't like business. I don't like to be in a corporate world. I, look, I like to meet people. So I started to write for my blog and then I was receive a call from a news outlet and I started to write news stories every day and I become a journalist. So I came to Arkansas in 2019 because I have this scholarship from the U.S. government. So shout out to all my American friends because they pay for me. I got that scholarship, the Fulbright scholarship, but the plan was not to come to Arkansas, not at all. I was supposed to go to, at first, study English in Missouri. Again, at that time, there was big protests in my country. Everything shut down. The U.S. embassy could not open to proceed with the visa, and they had to postpone. They found this English program associated with the University of Arkansas. I spent a couple of months and realized people are nice. They talk to you on the street, and it's a nice place to stay, and I decided to stay here. But actually, even right now, when I talk to my friends, friends in the United States and back home, I say, I'm in Arkansas. Where is that? They don't know Arkansas too much. Oh, yeah. Arkansas? <laughs> yeah, they don't, they don't know. So I have to explain. This is a state close to Texas, uh, Missouri. I have to explain to my Caribbean friends, too, that there's Kansas and then there is Arkansas. Arkansas, exactly. So. <laughs> yeah. You know, one of the thing about America is that they usually think about Haiti through its traumas. So whether it's through the Papa Doc and Baby Doc, uh, or through the earthquake, or through the current crisis. How do you all think about those experiences, those traumatic experiences? How did you live through those experiences? It seems like they have, for us as Haitian people, they have become part of life. But we don't necessarily talk about them or meditate about them. You would see they always call Haitian people resilient. Even that can be negative, but it seems like we have built our own way of survival against those natural forces and also against this political crisis. It's true that you see each time other people and many people in America have to talk about Haiti, it all starts with some disaster. Some disaster. Other. And it's not just in the media. It's everywhere. I, last year during COVID in the summer, I was on Dixon Street filming something and there is this group of homeless people and I started to talk to them they asked me where I'm from I am I said I'm from Haiti oh yeah Haiti I know that violence and blah 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 and I listened to them and after I was like 
Yeah, that is true. But do you know number of people are killed every day in Chicago? And he was like, oh, yeah, that is true. So violence is not made in Haiti. Violence is everywhere. If you want to see Haiti to those situations, you might be right. But it's not just in Haiti. It's everywhere. And it's quite interesting that it's, you know, in the same way that they tend to demonize Haiti or look at it through this some kind of a pathological violence, the same way people tend to look at Chicago, right, as this kind of black place that is mm-hmm. dominated by violence. Yes. You know, so... I think for people, Haiti represents blackness or the blackest Mm -hmm. blackness in the Western Hemisphere. And for them, blackness equals violence. And Chicago, in the American imagination, is that black space as well. And therefore, that equals violence. Nobody tend to think about the context. Exactly. And I think maybe as a journalist, I think the media has played a big role role in terms of Framing Haiti or framing some places in America this way, showing just violence. Actually, there is in Haiti one of the best jazz festivals around the world. Every year in January, they would bring the best jazz musician from Germany, from the United States, from everywhere. You don't see international media talk about those things. I'm not obsessed about sharing, you know, positive image about Haiti because I'm a journalist. I live there. I want to share the experience of the people dealing with problems so maybe the government or other leader can solve those problems. But I don't think, as you were talking with Warrington before, I don't think each time you have to write a story about Haiti, it adds nothing to your story because, yes, we know that. And if you want to talk about the assassination of the president, that has nothing to do being the poorest country. Because actually, a U.S. president has been assassinated too. So you can... Talk about the facts and not necessarily using this stereotypical language. Exactly. To talk about I totally agree with you. Brian Stevens will say we are all more than the worst thing that we've ever done or the worst thing that's ever happened exactly. to us. Yeah, but it, it's indicting the humanity of right. Haitians, right, by flattening their story to this one thing when, right. as we discussed earlier, there are many different stories. I remember I can't wait to go to Haiti because I saw this picture of this beach and all these people were having like breakfast in the water mm-hmm. and it was like the most beautiful but Americans don't get to see those kinds of images in the same way you know they have these stereotypical images of Africa as well where it's animals and sports starving children and disasters mm-hmm. like I said I think Africa um, Haiti represents Africa in the West and I do feel like there is just to add something there is also Although I mentioned that media has played a big role in terms of framing Haiti that way, but also the, I also think there is a personal responsibility, not for every single person, but I was curious and surprised uh, when I was working on my master's thesis, somebody had to review the paper for me, and I talk about the Haitian revolution, the first black nation to be free, and that person is also a grad student saying, oh, I didn't know that. Mm-hmm. Yes, I get that. But we in Haiti, we study so much about the U.S. history. Exactly. We memorize the first men to go to the moon. The first black nation to be free is yeah. something that you can't miss. I get that you can be a high schooler. You don't know that. But if you are a grad student, I don't expect you to know everything about Haiti. But, I mean, the first black, I don't know how you can miss that. As Warren said, I mean, if the American system loved to hold itself up as this driver of liberty and democracy, how can you not celebrate the first country to... To, to create democracy, not, not, not only freedom. And actually, the, I know you know that very, very well. We had a conversation about that. Haitian Revolution, Revolution was not just about Haitian people or black people. The 
leaders say that any person who believes in freedom, you have a place in Haiti, no matter your color. And Haitian soldiers or leaders also help different countries in Latin America. Yeah, Colombia. Colombia, Venezuela, yes, for Simon example. Bolivar came to Haitian Haiti. soldiers also fought during the Revolution War in America, in Savannah. We are the most selfishless. Um, selfless. <laughs> selfless. Yeah, selfless nation in yeah. the world. So. to talk about, you know, they have their ideas about Haiti, right? But I want to ask you about how does your ideas about America that you had um, before coming here, how does that compare to the ideas that you have now that you've completed your master's degree? Um, should I answer that question? Because <laughs> that <laughs> no, can get me in trouble too. No, listen, we're about honesty here. Nobody can touch yeah. you. Oh, but I got your back. Okay, I got okay, hit Okay, so here's my thing. Um... We have learned so much about America in my country that it seems like we should be American citizens too, but that's a joke. <laughs> so, but it's a completely, these are two complete perspectives and stories because back home, just some basic things, for example, I thought that like every American person is small and brilliant because <laughs> what we see on TV, what we hear about America, you have the best universities, you have the, mo the most powerful men and women leading this country. But coming here makes me realize that there are mess we are dealing with in Haiti. That they're also dealing with here yeah. as well. You can think about any issue. For example, still today, America is trying to figure out equal pay for men and women. <laughs> I'm not sure we have that problem in my country. If you are a person working on a specific position, you get the salary that comes with that position. If you want to talk about the issue of poverty, yes, the way of living in America cannot necessarily compare with that we have in Haiti. I can tell you the difference when I talk to an American person who has traveled overseas and not all, if they don't travel, has been exposed to different culture, to maybe education or other thing, because you have a sense of many American people think America is the center of the world. But if you travel either in a poor country like Haiti, you see, oh, there is a lower condition. Or either if you go to the European countries, you see, oh, they have that too. So we are not necessarily, you know, the best. So, yeah, my view about America is, for example, talking about smart, it's not necessarily academic. I thought that every American person was knowledgeable about the political system and political <laughs> participation. <laughs> and actually, it's not. <laughs> it's not. Why did you think all Americans were political? What gave you that impression? The media? You know, I think Hollywood has done a very good job in terms of portraying America to the rest of the world, not necessarily to America. Any film you watch about, let's say, war. You see strong men. You see strong men. You see there is a problem in America, solve the problem in the rest of the exactly. world. Exactly. You want to go to the moon, you go to the moon. Yes. But actually what COVID specifically has shown us is that America is selfish. The government makes sure he secured all the doses from every... Uh, vaccine company, 
to save the American people first. And right now, Joe Biden is trying to help, mm-hmm. you know, some countries. With because they realize that if you don't fix it everywhere else, it will come right back. Exactly. Not because they care that much. It's because the world is such a global village that right. you can fix a problem in America and you think you, you're done. But Amer- Haitian people will travel. I mean, because the U.S. economy depends so much also on these. On movement, movement and migrant labor exactly. and, you know, exactly. global so, trade and all that. So, yes, the image we have uh, about America through media, through the Hollywood movie shows, this is a very powerful country. But, you know, being here and being a journalist, being curious. One thing also, the struggle of black people in America, we don't necessarily know that back home in Haiti. I mean, maybe now with social media, we see the police violence against black people. We see the hashtags Black Lives Matter. But I guess 10 years ago, we didn't know that black people were were so uh, exposed to violence in America. We didn't know about racism black people are facing. And actually, I used to say that I know I am a black person when I came here. I mean, I knew I was black, you know, black pride, first black nation to, Mm -hmm. to be free. But being here, you see that so many times your skin color will influence the kind of relationship you will have with people. For example, I had to buy a car and I have a friend. He told me, oh, yeah, you need to make sure you have the right plate because police will stop you. I didn't think about police when I had to make that decision. You're probably thinking about a thief, right? Somebody might... Yes, exactly. (laughs) This is just one more thing I have to think about right now. So it just tells you, I guess if I was a white person, that question would have been... So you were initiated into blackness, and that's a good segue. I was going to ask you that. So your thoughts about America, but how you were able to fit into African America, right? Are there any noticeable similarities and differences? Like, how did you... you become African-American? I think from my personal experience, I don't necessarily fit in anywhere. Okay, the first thing is that if you meet a black person on campus or in in other seconds, they will look at you, we look at them because we look the same. Are we cousin, brother, (laughs) or whatever? Yes, this is the first sign. And the next step is we start to talk to each other. They realize your accent. My accent. And we don't have necessarily a shared history instead of being black in America. Now, if you want to deepen the relationship, that's when the conversation starts. I will, you know, tell them about my country, the story of Haiti, black, and cuisine, music. But also, I have to learn everything about African-American in America. But the other thing is that I have been in situations where black people, they don't say that clearly, but they make you feel that, well, but you are not, you black, but you are not black, black, black. black. Because <laughs> I like to tell to my black friends, African-American friends, that they have to be careful because there are, the system they are fighting against here in America, sometimes unconsciously, they replicate the same, that same system against other yeah. oppressed people. Outside of the United States, there are two ways, or at least you can see that. For example, if a black American go to my country, anything happen, the U.S. can destroy the country. Not because they care too much about a black American, but they care about what it means to be American first. They are protected by the same system. Yeah, and the weight of American imperialism travels with African-Americans, and that's why they can project that, oh, you know, what happens to us 
they get to define what blackness is in the Thank world. You. Thank you for saying that. There is a sense of black supremacy against black American Like people. a monopoly on blackness. Yes. Yeah, because yes. they think they might be right. They think they are the most oppressed yeah, people, uh, black people in the world. And we, black Haitian, we don't necessarily deal with the issue of racism or systemic racism within the country. But the domination we are under still now yeah, from, w- the, global from world. the global world is also because again, of racism. The co- of racism. The, the thing I was talking about, the cost we had to pay yeah. and we are still paying from being the first free black nation. And black Americans benefit from that, unfortunately. I, I mean, I hate to bring that up whenever people try to do, if you've heard of American descendants of slaves and foundational black Americans who try to have this divide between who is American American and then immigrants and then, you know, about this reparations talk and all of that kind of stuff. And I'm like, Marcus Garvey came from Jamaica to fight for all of the civil rights of black people everywhere that they exist. And if you were to think about taking on the mantle of American nationalism that has been so implicated in destroying other country and you profiting from that largesse, You know, that is not also helping because whatever they do overseas to other black people, they will come back and do it to you mm-hmm. in Chicago, in, exactly. in, our, in Little Rock exactly. and everywhere else. Yeah. And being also here and seeing the black, the struggle black people are still facing in America helps me better understand the relationships between the United States and my country. But when you see so much police violence in America against black people, and you know that the U.S. government gives a lot of money and resources to the police in my country, you see violence against the people. Absolutely. Whenever there is a protest, I'm like, oh, there is a link maybe somewhere. And you can go further than that to where you see there are many people who are involved in the struggles here in the United States that will connect the struggle here, Black Lives Matter here in the United States to the struggle of the Palestinians, because you guess what? The police here are trained by the Israeli police, and then the American police train other police elsewhere. So the the techniques of violence Mm -hmm. against darkened bodies gets to move around. I'm a little bit optimistic because I see maybe with social media, and there are also some black leaders in America, for example, Angela Davis, she went to the country. She is so aware of the connection between this struggle. But I'm still having a hard time with, for example, what's happening right now in my country. And I don't see black people being vocal about this kind of oppression. And maybe not necessarily because um, the president is assassinated. Maybe this is an internal thing, but seeing the U.S. government is making up all kind of decisions for us. Yeah. And you see... And people advocating for U.S. invasion. Exactly. So I was hoping that black activists on social media were a little bit more vocal about that because I don't see Haiti getting out of this situation without the help of all the black brother and sister because we are just 12 millions of people we are we don't necessarily have the resources but we we, there is a complete silence on social media and there is no way you can solve the problem the issue of black people in America if you don't look at it in a global global context context. it's in the same way that um, I remember the activists when they were protesting in Nigeria against police brutality they were calling for Beyonce and all mm-hmm. the big stars here in the United States. Please repost us. Please publicize. You know, your fate is connected to ours. And I feel like I do hear you on that, that um, that it needs to be publicized what's going on and, in Haiti. And 
try to observe what kind of black country black leaders or black celebrities in America support. Even in Africa, for example, there are many, many countries in Africa who uh, that are struggling with oppression. They don't talk about them. You would see they are more vocal when it's come to a little bit rich African nation. I feel like solidarity should not be based on, you know, how rich you are. It should be, if we are all black, we are in the same situation, we should fight for each other. And actually, the weakest needs more help than the, the, the strongest. strongest. You're absolutely right. us now to, as our good brother Walter Rodney used to say, our segment called Grounding with My People. You know, it like you said earlier, that the graduate students did not know that it was these key facts about Haiti. Um, many students in America, you know, might learn about the American Revolution. They learn about the French Revolution. And oftentimes they never learn about the Haitian Revolution. And as the scholar Michel Rolf-Torol writes about in his book, Silence in the Past, Keeping Haiti out of these national history had the same kind of effect as the four empires after slavery, essentially blockading the Haitian economy and to ensure that the revolutionaries there would fail, right? Because you don't want Cuba to rise up. You don't want Jamaica that is right next, you know, Mm -hmm. um, how many miles away from Haiti rising up. You don't want all the Caribbean islands that are, you know, owned by the French and the Spanish and the the British in the Mm -hmm. Caribbean to rise up. So they formed an alliance that was inclusive of America to, to effectively blockade it. And they did that also in history where you don't teach about how powerful that history is because to magnify that history would be to also give American black people that power to be like, what? Our black people were also doing things over there. So I always play a clip in my class of Pat Robertson telling a story where he said, you know, there's a great story. He was trying to help for the earthquake relief. And he said, something happened a long time ago in Haiti and uh, people may not want to talk about it. They were under the heel of the French. Uh, you know, Napoleon the Third and whatever. And they got together and swore a pact to the devil. They said, we will serve you if you'll get us free from the French. Hmm. It's a true story. And so the devil said, okay, it's a deal. And uh, they kicked the French out. You know, the Haitians revolted and got themselves free. But ever since, they have been cursed by by one thing after the other, desperately poor. That island of Hispanola is one island. Mm -hmm. It's cut down the middle. On the one side is Haiti. On the other side is the Dominican Republic. Dominican Republic is is prosperous, Mm -hmm. healthy, full of resorts, etc. Haiti is in desperate poverty. Same island. they need to have, and we need to pray for them, a great turning to God. And out of this tragedy, I'm optimistic something good may come. So that is very much in the white imagination that voodoo yeah. is evil, that black people is, you know, have and, this and that issue is so of violence. Crazy. Being in Arkansas, this is the thing I've, I've encountered so many times. Like, Many white evangelical, when they talk about, oh, yeah, I've been in Haiti when I was young with my parents for missionary. And yes. still now, people, I see people collecting clothes and stuff like right. that to bring to Haiti. Or they will bring Bible to Haiti. I'm like, what the heck? 
Yeah. <laughs> this is what Haitian people need. Yeah, that's w- what I was telling you how religion and actually from the U.S. is so prevalent in Haitian culture or in ha- Haitian society. And that yeah. is usually what my students, when I ask my students what what projects they want to work on in my class when I teach the making of the modern Caribbean, they want like my church went to Haiti on a missionary trip. Volunteerism. And, uh, volunteerism, white saviorism. You know, they cannot, when I teach the uh, teach a lecture on voodoo, it just does not penetrate at all that African people could have their own religious systems and ways of viewing the world, you know, because they've so dominated by how evil and how... You know, one thing I would like to research is why, because religion killed political participation in my country. You go to church, they teach you, you go to the heaven. You go to heaven, no everything, politics, milk and honey. For you. Yeah. Yes. And religion helps or is involved in politics so much in America. There is any Sunday I go to church, there isn't a reference about Biden and Trump. <laughs> and you see how either it's a black church, they help people to participate, to vote, to register to vote. There's all kinds of ways you can look at religion But the whole religious system is built around the voting habits of people here. I mean, so, evangelicals and, the, you know, the abortion and, you know, pro-life. I don't understand why do they make Haitian people not participate in their politics and they somehow empower American people to participate either way for Democrat or, or Republican. I, this is something that stuck to me and I'm trying to understand why. Maybe this is part of imperialism, trying to making uh, the citizen in those countries. What did Marx passive. say? Religion is an opiate of the masses. Exactly. So it's, <laughs> yeah. um, it's helping the political system and, and the economic system. So, yes, the issue is so much correlated and there is no way you can look at one and you don't want, you don't look at another one. Thank you so very much, Obed, yes. for this very enlightening conversation. And I'm so happy that as um, us in African and African-American studies, that we get to hear another accent that is a part of the lingo of African and African-American studies of the diaspora. So, you know, my Jamaican accent, your Haitian accent, um, Warrington's uh, you know, African-American accent, <laughs> and all the other guests who we've had add to the wonderful text. The mosaic. Yes, the mosaic mosaic. of African and African American studies. So. Undiscipline is hosted by me, Karee Banton, with help from Warrington Sibri. We're produced by Matthew Moore at KUAF. And if you haven't yet, subscribe to Undiscipline for free wherever you can get podcasts. Thanks for listening.